honestly, though, it's been a while. And it has been two months. We have taken our sabbaticals. That's true. true. Um, It has been a very busy time for us. I think for Emma and me in particular, it's the beginning of the school year. School's in, yeah. Oh, God. Like, (laughs) don't remind me. I know. No, I don't. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're in the future, so... You're in well, Monday now. <laughs> I've, I've, but because I'm in Hong Kong, as, as most people know, uh, the last two weeks in Hong Kong have been deluged with weather, and I don't use the word deluge lightly. So, last Friday had the worst rainfall in Hong Kong in maybe 139 years. So, wow. it just Ooh. it started raining around 70 centimeters an hour at 11 p.m. on Friday. Was it 11 p.m. on Friday? Yeah. No. Yeah. 11 p.m. on Friday. And then it only stopped raining sometime Saturday afternoon. So you can just imagine the amount of water that was dumped in Hong Kong this weekend. Wow. And then the previous week, we had a Category 4 typhoon hit us. Shit. So basically, like, that's where I've been, like, hunkering down and eating too much food. Because in the great spirit of panic buying, I maybe might have bought something along the lines of, you know... A small groceries worth of junk food. Excellent. <laughs> Necessities, like seriously. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. How about you, Jared and Fiona? How are you two been doing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds um, about right. <laughs> I, uh, I hate people court answering that. Um, I've been fine, mostly. My co-worker that I don't work any shifts with just got COVID, so I'm just going to be working a lot next week. Um, mm. And, like, uh, the film festival slash Lovecraft's birthday were, you know, a couple weeks back, plus Jared visited, so, like, my life has been maximally uh, disrupted. Yeah. Um, in, like, mostly positive ways, you know, to do the... I'm tired all the time, but, like, sure. it's mostly good. Um, for good it's reason, still a disruption, though. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Also, I did go to Cheesecake Factory with Jared because yeah. our mutual Australian friend demanded to go to Cheesecake Factory in a city where, I will stress this repeatedly, there's really good food here, and he could have eaten anywhere else and gotten a better <laughs> Like, literally... Yeah. anywhere else it's like going to new york city and being like man i'm gonna go sit at the tgi fridays on times square <laughs> hey, i've never hey. been to a cheesecake factory hey can i just say yeah. cheesecake factory has saved my life in so many ways well, like for sure uh, of it course has. it has it has because that <laughs> damn menu that gosh darn maze of a menu <laughs> is when you are, say, on a school trip to the United States and you don't know where to bring kids who all have different palettes, oh, cheesecake they got factory everything at the cheesecake factory. Yeah, not covered. It is like it tries to be the global restaurant. Would I don't say it succeeds. It's no. globally American. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't everything succeed. is still cheese, but yeah. Uh, Cheesecake Factory is great, though, and, and it was—it's like I don't know if you're if you're a 19 year old visiting from Australia, what's the most American restaurant? You know, that's true. the Olive Garden. We didn't go to an Olive Garden, and we could have. That's true. The Olive Garden um, and an Applebee's. 
Yeah, we did. We did do Cheesecake Factory, and I did make him eat Taco Bell, and he loved it. He's a vegetarian, so there's that. Uh, Anyway, I did go on a trip, so that's like my big thing. I went on a huge, like month long trip for the entire month of August. Wow! And it was great, and I had a lovely time, and I spent all my money, and (laughs) (laughs) yeah, and uh, yeah, no, it was very good, and I'm I'm just like. We're trying to get back to normal. Do you feel refreshed, Jared? Do you feel uh, like... I think I will. <laughs> eventually. Yeah. I think I will eventually. You give me a couple days. But, like, there was that... There was. I was saying this before we started recording. There was, like... I've, I've had one day since I got back on the first that was, like, I could just be not in panic mode. And that, and that mm. was a great day. I felt awesome. So, mm. like... I'm looking forward to the next one of those. Um, <laughs> okay. Oh, so, you know what? Welcome to Trying to Be Kind. It's a podcast that looks at academic texts under the TTRPG lens or vice versa. One that looks at uh, TTRPG texts with a more academic bent. And as you might know, we are speakers and we always want to introduce ourselves to each other. So here we go. <laughs> uh, Fiona, what is our, what is our question today? Oh, what is your pet peeve that comes from people um, insisting on something that's incorrect and you have to bring up expertise in order to say that they're not? <laughs> yeah. It's a specific pain, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that one it got me in the gut when it was suggested. I was like, I oh yeah. Why did yeah. you start? I don't have an answer to stuff, but like I have an answer for this one. You go, Emma. Why didn't you? Why didn't you bring it? Yeah, and uh, how I often introduce myself is, "Hello, I'm Emma, and I'm an archaeologist." And so that means I get a lot of really, really wild theories about. Not just like human evolution, but also people in the past and if aliens were involved or <laughs> trying to have that kind but stern conversation that all of those theories are incredibly racist and yeah. that it's not just that archaeologists are trying to hide the truth. It's that there's so much evidence and those theories are based on nothing. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm an archaeologist, and then they're like mm, suspicious. <laughs> but yeah, it's a you can't win those battles. But often you have to say like, no, this is like I'm a professional in this. <laughs> oh my gosh! How about you, Jared or Fiona? How would you guys? Um, the one that really gets to me is more like I don't get a lot of people making wild claims about coffee spontaneously but what will happen is i'll mention offhand that i've worked in coffee for most of my adult life and then someone will ask a question like this happens 100 percent of the time i say i am a coffee previously a coffee professional and then it's like immediately should i freeze my coffee should should i do this <laughs> And, yeah. and whatever. And does it really matter how long until coffee goes bad? And that's fine. I don't mind answering questions, but it's like one of those things where I have to judge, I have to judge how much of a, an expert I'm allowed to be in that moment. Mm. If that makes sense. 
Oh yeah. Because it's like the answer to should I freeze my coffee is technically coffee doesn't freeze. Like we have to start there. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's, that's how that goes. Um, and, but, and then, you know, so everything's kind of like, do I give the one sentence version or the, the like, uh, 45 minute version? Or the, yeah, no more conversation answer. It's just like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, like, pull the party or not. <laughs> I have several lovely slides to break out. First, the process at which coffee is acquired. How are you buying your coffee? And there's something about coffee that, like, no matter what question, there's no simple answer. It's, mm. there's something really broken about our common conceptions about what coffee is and what it's about and how it works. Um, that's fully like, um, cargo cult kind of, kind of stuff. So it's very Mm. difficult. (laughs) It's very difficult to get past it. Oh, another fun one that, that sort of related that, that it's a little more on target with the question uh, is, um, I worked in cocktails for a while and all the time you get people who show up like, oh, tequila just makes me crazy. It's like, well, no alcohol makes you crazy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's ethanol baby like it doesn't matter if it's gin or not you know, anyway so there you go oh my gosh oh, on my end i was ranting earlier today like the typical teacher response to this which is oh you know my kid's so smart slash my kid isn't smart they were just born that way and i'm like okay there is some truth to like genetics affecting one's cognitive faculties that is true <laughs> However, being smart's a skill. It is not an inborn trait. Okay? Like, learning is a skill. The speed at which you learn might be, like, you know, genetic, like, but the quality, the quantity, the thoroughness, the mastery, that's also part of intelligence. And you need to practice that. It's a skill. So the number of times I get parents who are like, how can my child get a good, bad grade? They're so smart. I'm like, oh, no, they're not. They're lazy AF. They are not skillfully using their intelligence. Yeah, that's the other thing is demonstrating intelligence. Hi, hello, also an educator. So like this also drives me nuts. They're demonstrating intelligence within a very specific system is not the same thing as just straight up objective intelligence, which does not exist because it doesn't exist like doing funny. well testing but well I have a very not show you oh my goodness my iq is very high <laughs> get out of here <laughs> i mean when someone says oh my goodness when he was 12 he can join mensa it's kind of like okay but how do how many mensa how do members of mensa are leaders of the world i mean yeah. come on do you honest like you don't need to be a Mensa member yeah. to be successful, aka Donald Trump? I mean, really, like, so, sorry, <laughs> sorry. AKA, anyway, anyway, the vast majority of the world is not uh, are not members of Mensa. <laughs> and yet we, you know, it's like, come on, leadership is not a meritocracy. Fuck it's that. not. No, oh, so yeah. come on. On that note, let's go to our favorite crone. Oh, great. I was, um... Oh, okay. did Fiona have so, one? <laughs> I have Fiona Mave Gex, and I'm bad at introducing myself, even though I came up with this question. Uh, <laughs> the 
I, I really do restrain myself from being a pedant a lot of the time. Like, I realize that I'm an unpleasant person and I'm very pedantic because um, I score extremely high for autism, which people sometimes correlate to intelligence, which actually very unrelated. Um, I actually never tell people I'm a doctor. My housemate makes fun of me for it. Um, because I point out that then people ask me if I can like perform surgery and the answer is like, no, but, um, <laughs> I could try. That's what I would say. <laughs> I was good at my success rate with. Um, but, uh, you know, I very frequently, uh, resist correcting people about bits of like USA and gay and trans history um, mm. because it's what I did an enormous amount of research on and specifically the era of Tumblr listicles like made me literally want to smash my face through a wall as hard as I possibly could um, where it's like queer is a reclaimed slur and it's like okay like historically in English it's actually gone through about five or six transformations that go from being a way of doing a class distinction to like being an academic field of study, trying to use a more broad term, um, most people's histories of it are meaningless. And, you know, I'm very deep down a pedant in that I did, like, you know, philosophy pedantry in languages I don't speak. Like, fun part about the fact that I really can't acquire another language. I'm trying very hard all the time. Um, you know, I could talk a lot about like word choice in German philosophy and also like various ways of rendering and translating yet cannot read original texts. Very fun life. But also that's basically how Nietzsche read most things, you know, and that's why we can claim he spoke eight languages, which I mean, he transliterated Sanskrit a bunch of times and we just want to give our boy all the accomplishments. <laughs> philosophy, okay. wild field. Oh my gosh, yeah. philosophy. Oh gosh, can I just say, I think I shared this with you once, right? And I went to a school where everyone basically has to take so many philosophy classes and so many theology classes. And I think it literally creates a substrate of human, of human existence where, do you know how like, there is no one more smug than someone with a philosophy degree from college, like an undergrad philosophy degree? And now, <laughs> yes, like, I have and, one of those. Like, <laughs> no one, they're seriously like, it's, 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 and imagine that but a whole university worth of it. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, let's get past my own personal like triggers. Um, the book is Otaku Japan's Database Animals by Hiroki Azuma, as uh, published by the University of Minnesota Press back in 2009, actually. The original Japanese was produced in 2001, in Japanese, I am not going to say the Japanese title for fear of mangling the language yet again. Um, but yeah, basically, this is maybe our penultimate episode, but we still have a lot of things to cover. Um, basically, this book has been on my mind recently because <laughs> why? <laughs> because um, because I've been watching anime again, and One Piece just uh, came out in Netflix. Yes, and so like. It's bringing back this whole like, what is One Piece? What is a, uh, what is this anime that we speak of? Can anime translate to Western audiences? Whoa. Oh my god, this voice! I know, <laughs> I know. I, know. I, I love this voice you're breaking out. Like, 
are we gonna have characters soon? Like we're gonna have to differentiate which Mahar is speaking. Uh, this is the this is the like that was dig- the anime dub voice. <laughs> it's the anime dub voice, right? I mean, okay, yeah. I used to work in dubbing and anime way way, way back in the world in the, in the days. But like, it was like, oh yes, it's anime. Anime can anime translate? Can anime be translated into the Western context? Let's look at One Piece with Netflix. You know, it's just so gross. And now, of course, because people are once again delving into the culture bringing in their preconceptions and of course even this even this author who a self this self um identified uh member of the culture comes in swinging so so last last time uh, we were talking about snobbery and how snobbery would define you as a higher level of being because in being a snob one was essentially more of a pure creature of of thought and so on and but now, but uh, Emma brought up in our pre-discussion that we weren't able to talk about this concept of the sociality of the <laughs> sorry animal. Uh, the the social- fact that this is called database animals, but we haven't talked about this whole animal thing yet, and it's now page eighty-six. Databases yeah. and animals. Okay, yeah. so uh, Emma, why don't you take it away? Because I think you're the one who looked at this chapter like. The gall, he, the nerve, the gumption. You're like, what is happening? Well, first of all, I read this on the subway surrounded by people, so I was probably making faces. But, like, I don't know. The whole section opens with, according to Kojia, after the loss of the grand narrative, only two choices remain. Animality and snobbery. And now we looked at snobbery. So, like, what is it to be an animal? And from what I understand of what the author understands of Kojov is that it's a distinction between living based on need and based on desire. And so humans express and possess desire, which separates them from animals that function based on need. Do I have that correct? I think so. I mean, Fiona, yeah. a good philosopher, can tell us. I, I think that's correct. Yeah, like, animals crave food and they thirst for water and they go up there fulfilling those needs. But then humans have desires that, once fulfilled, just breeds more desire or even amplifies desire for the same thing over and over and over again. And now the gross example that he uses is of a man desiring a woman... And then once he's had that woman, just desires more women or that woman again. And it's just like, what? No. Like, anyways. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) A key factor of desire is that it must be, okay, once you fulfill that desire, you have to make someone jealous. (laughs) Essentially, there needs to be an audience who desires what you just attained. So this is a very specific concept of human versus animal. Well, I mean, to add to that, like he even goes so far, this is where I felt rather barfy about it, where he links the otaku's consumption of uh, otaku products and the the moe elements and so on as addiction. So that comes up several times. That comes up several times, right? Where he like to quote directly from the book. So if we were to stretch our our chain of association, 
This sort of otaku prin- behavioral principle can be thought of as differing from that of intellectual aficionados, conscious people, oh, aka snobs, <laughs> whose interest is based in cool judgment, and from that of fetishistically indulgent sexual subjects, unconscious people. But no, rather, no. more simply and directly, the otaku behavioral principle can be seen as close to the behavioral principle of drug addicts. So yeah. I was kind of like, this is what? the roundabout way to make it seem more animalistic, but it's really relying on like this, I don't know, sort of conservative conception of what's right and what's wrong in Japan and also in the Western world a lot of the time. So like drugs, bad. So like this is clearly bad and also animals, stupid. They only need things. But like my big beef with this is that there's zero involvement of any kind of biology or behavioral studies here and a major misunderstanding of animals as social beings and (laughs) having desires and needs and social interactions and it's like you know it it gets even worse it gets even worse like um here uh just as animal needs and human desires differ, so do genital needs and subjective sexuality discover a differ. Yeah. Many of the otaku today who consume adult comics and, quote, girl games probably separate <laughs> these two, and their genitals simply and animis- animalistically grew accustomed to being stimulated by perverted images. Since they were teenagers, they'd been exposed to innumerable otaku sexual expressions. At some point, they were trained to be sexually stimulated by looking at illustrations of girls, cat ears, and maid outfits. However, yeah. anyone can grab that kind of stimulation if they're similarly trained since it's essentially a matter of nerves in contrast i cannot believe that sentence i I know i i I, it sounds like what in contrast it takes an entirely different motive and opportunity to undertake pedophilia homosexuality or a fetish for particular attire as one's own sexuality i'm like wait what i'm like Yeah, earlier in that section, this is kind of based on someone else's argument, which he doesn't say is wrong, just kind of expands on. And that someone posed a question, I believe, Saito? Saito, yes. It is Saito who brought it, like, where he he tried to... Saito's like, why are all of these otaku looking at, first of all, when you drop the word pervert or perverted, I automatically side-eye, because, like, what do you mean by that? But then also Saito saying... All of these otaku are looking at perverted images, and yet they're not pedophiles or homosexuals. And those are the two things specifically said. It's like, wow, okay, me. This is the lens that we're bringing here: <laughs> is that uh, homosexuality is somehow equivalent to pedophilia, and that it's all perversion. So, you know, throw it all out the window. <laughs> And he he brings in Yaoi, right? And just kind of like, yeah. oh my god, we just like which we know wasn't even written for gay men. It was written for heterosexual women. Yeah, and usually by heterosexual women. So like, let's pick up that whole section and that Saito person and just throw them away. I'm like, uh, this. I remember reading this, feeling a big question of why. It kind of begs the question, which is that why do you think? I mean, okay, not that I want to justify this author's way of thinking, but why would mm. the author be persuaded? It's like, is this part of an academic culture or was this part of like one of those topical things? Because you know how like at one mm. point in time, postmodernity was literally like seen as sexy. Like, again, I'm not kidding, yeah. guys. People oh, no. used to call themselves homosexuals. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'm, 
I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> it's like all these Foucauldian, Foucauldian wannabes, right? Who read Discipline and Punish and History of Sex, right? So my question would be like, why would one want to go into this as their way of warranting the claims of what an otaku person is? Like, why would you use sex as your animal, your animal metaphor? And mm. why... And why go about it in such a terrible way? It was not. It, this, I think, really... Uh, okay. What's unfortunate is I want to say that this shows the age of the text, but I'm sure people are still saying this, like, full chest in popular academic publications. So, uh, you know, <coughs> and then, of course, we have to dunk on young women some more by also explaining the animal age by looking at the kogal uh koki kogaru yeah oh god which they anglicize as kogal (laughs) (laughs) okay (sighs) and that just seemed like a random aside that he wanted to slam in there but even said i don't really know much about this other than what i've seen in the media but like here's my take on it i was like get out of here (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, so where what what Emma's referring to is that uh, there's a section here called similarities between the kogal and the otaku, right? So the emergence of the kogal is not at all unrelated to the changes in otaku culture. So in 1990, in the late 1990s, the sociologist Mia Daishinji became an expert in the culture of street girls, and the trajectory of his problematic was quite close to um, this generational way of thinking, which basically was it became clear that the two subcultures, the otaku and the kogal emerges as a reflection of social transformations. That's the same social stimuli. So he goes on to say, like, in the book, The Choice of the uni- School Uniform Girls, the book in which Midai took up the Kogo, then known as the Blue Sailor Suit Girls, he basically goes on to say that since the 1970s, there's a generation that's been lost in Japanese society, and youth groups become like islands unto themselves, like island universes. And as as they keep on emerging from this like area, they now enter this like uh, to quote, they emphasize fictional symbolic exchanges in order to artificially make up for the presuppositions of communication that have become weaker than before, which he then links to narrative consumption, which then links to this whole notion of a grand narrative, and then argues that the secondary projection of the agency of the third party, which basically means that they needed to find global meanings in, in their situation. But all of this gets saturated where now no one really knows what it means to be the choice of the school girl, you know, a Japanese school girl. And, yeah. I'm just, and I'm just kind of like, I had to reread this section several times to try to understand the argument because it, it is like in typical fashion, the author dumps a lot of quotes and doesn't yeah. explain them. <laughs> and it's not clear what is being used as argument or what he agrees with or doesn't. It's not always entirely clear if it's relevant to the overall discussion happening. But like just taking this sideline to talk about something he doesn't really know that well, but was probably a hot topic at the time. Okay. But so. like it just it drives me nuts that any yeah. kind of especially femme-based youth culture is just automatically like the assumption was that they're up to no good. Like street girls, give me a break. They're like high school age girls wearing their uniforms outside of school for the most part. And then some of them happen to be involved in what's known as Enjo Kosai, which is sort of like sugar daddy 
relationships. Yeah. But like, let's not talk about the middle-aged men or anyone else that's involved in this. Let's Let, throw it like, all on the young women who are like, lost in life and listless. <laughs> wasn't the term called subsidized dating? Yeah, there's different yeah. versions. I think it's yeah. the yeah. usual translation since sex work is the thing that I have an expertise in as an academic study and also the yeah. law around it, which is like, yeah. Huh. It's, <laughs> yeah, I should mention, I do think he's not trying to literally say animal that he should definitely have spelled this out, but like he's trying to make a connection to Hegel's concept of the human animal kingdom, which yeah. is Hegel at his absolutely most Using metaphors from an era is really bad. So he's using the metaphor of how a person in Central Europe in the Napoleonic era or proto-Napoleonic era would understand nature, which is as a hierarchy. Um, And that like humans no longer live in a state of nature. So we create a differentiation of having a human animal kingdom in which we use animistic traits to, you know, gain advantage over each other which like he talks a lot about kind of like faculty type like snipping around at each other thing you know where it's like oh yeah this person's very vulturey you know uh. but like you never are literally saying someone is and like it's kind of one of the like later bits before he starts talking about like why christianity is a rational system that eventually gets transcended by euro modernity run through basically a christian grand narrative um you know it's a weird book having it's, read this the phenomenology this, it, like there are it people bits like, in it but like it is also written by a man whose like history of the world like basically believes that like there are no cultures beyond europe right here's yeah. here's here's i have a question for y'all this particular <laughs> section i felt this <laughs> I felt this section was the most mansplaining section of the book so far. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. 100%. If this were updated for modern references, he would probably talk about lobsters a bit in this section. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> that's, that's like where I really get up in arms is the mansplaining a subculture dominated by young women and trying to make a larger point, but it's like women have not really factored into this book in any other way or femme in general, other than as objects. So it's just like, just, mm, just I mean, he, he's he like literally kind of talk who is not including women. Like he, yeah. it, but like he basically is only talking about like alienated young men. And I feel like implying probably the sort of like, lost generation kind of to that degree yeah. also by like years yeah i, I know exactly where all of it's coming from and why and yet it still gets me like the language in this last few parts maybe i just missed it before or i was angry about other things but constantly referring to otaku in very negative terms just is not really good academic writing if you're trying to discuss a point this is more argumentative but referring to what otaku do is depthless limited artificial weaker well weaker than what well also i just keep wanting to say like what was so good about what came before and also do you know what came before that because it wasn't the same so 
Exactly. He's lionizing his generation. That's what he's doing. Yeah. Well, also kind of like ragging on... <laughs> yeah, it's like it, it, it has also like in my day kind of energy yeah. to it. Oh it's, yeah, it's, I love that he argues that like an erotic dating sim is like the height of all things at the end, and is very yeah. cool <laughs> game that you like to play. <laughs> uh, Fiona, there are can a lot you... of pages about yeah these dating novel games. You know, like at the end of the day, the reason why I think we need to look at this, if only to bring it back to like our whole like TTRPG, whatever, whatever, whatever is that these ways of thinking are not necessarily intrinsically Japanese. No, um, I think for a lo- sure. For sure. <laughs> like, I think a lot of people right now do try to, um, by virtue of anime, I think, admittedly being such a huge um, influence on gaming, any gaming culture these days, like, I think there's a very big Venn diagram intersection of people who play RPGs and people who watch anime. And mm. so like a lot of the a lot of the baggage comes in and I think what tends to happen is people blame um anime tropes for making RPGs suffer and um and and vice versa where people look at anime and say the reason why X anime is so weak is because it tries to be a game when it's supposed to be a story. And so um, I've seen this, ha- I, I've, now I'm forgetting the game. What's the game with all that exploding dice? Oh, I don't know. Like you have suns and dark, uh, what do you call it again? It's not Exalted. Is it Exalted? Exalted exists, there's a game. Yeah, there's the yeah, yeah, yeah. and cult and reincarnation and I should not start describing the Lord Exalted because, like, we could make a separate podcast of me quoting it, and it would be all about like. Yeah, but oh, Exalted okay. is one of those games that suffers from like the anime intersection. It tries to be like godlike and super and all of these things. It's very like, you know, people linked it to anime largely because the art also reminded people of anime. The aesthetic was there, and so like that kind of argument comes in, and I think it's important for us to understand that. In understanding anime, you act or otaku culture in particular, you do see quite a bit of this in the, the gaming design that we have right now. And for me, it's interesting, but at the same time, I'm like, it doesn't have to be explained this way. <laughs> this is like really, um, yeah. yeah. So, so <laughs> Emma, yeah, this brings us to sociality. <laughs> Oh, I just, I which, can't be. Yeah. Which arguably is, I would say, I, slightly worse than animality. In a lot of, well, it's kind of connected to it, right? Yeah. And it's I, the conclusion of his argument from animalization, which I'm just kind of like. And it's just hit me throughout a lot of this. And this is something that modern pop culture studies in particular has been, well, not modern recent pop culture studies <laughs> I've been looking at is the fact that like something like groups of people like otaku and changes in society are not caused by movements like otaku which is kind of how it sometimes feels in this book where it's just like oh well all of these changes are happening and like otaku are doing this and they're doing that but it's like no like 
I thought the whole point of some of this post-modernity stuff was that the very nature of society as a whole, regardless of what group you belong to, is has changed. And then a lot of what we see in terms of subcultures and whatever is just different responses to those changes. But that's kind of how post-modernity is kind of talked about now in pop culture studies, as in here's this just thing that happened. Now we're just going to see the range of human variation and response based on specific contexts. And I think some of that went missing because it's like, talking about these young women and how they no longer care to capture the entire world or uh, do all of these things that would have been considered meaningful in the past. But I'm like, yeah, but like also at this time in like the nineties, there was the, the state or the Asian economic crisis and the collapse of the bubble and jobs were no longer guaranteed and working really hard didn't mean anything. And we still kind of have that now. So, so much of it is just a response to the futility of planning ahead and working like a traditional modern person. And like, where's that in this discussion? Am I asking too much? I don't think so. I mean, because (laughs) it goes from claim to conclusion very quickly, but very thin on the evidence, right? Like, uh, so so this is a section called the sociality of the otaku, right? Where the, the premise is for the listener who might, who may or may not buy this book based on how much we've dissed it. Um, <laughs> is that, in the, is that like, you know, people have become animalized basically. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is a rag, like fact, as a matter of fact, in the past 10 years, the otaku have undergone rapid animalization. And one reason for this is that their cultural consumption revolves not around the giving of meaning by a grand narrative. There's that grand narrative again but around the combination of elements extracted from the database. They no longer bother themselves with a troublesome relationship wherein, to quote, the desire of the other is itself desired. They simply demand works in which their favorite moe elements are presented in their favorite narratives. Now, he then continues to say, oh, wait, here's the possible rebuttal. The cherry picked the rebuttal, mind you. The yeah. cherry picked rebuttal, the, the straw man. The straw man counter-argument. Oh, wait, true, the otaku's attitude towards a work might be animalized, i.e. governed by a simple lack of uh, logic of lack of satisfaction. At the same time, otaku are also known to be quite sociable. Far from avoiding contact with others, don't the otaku engage in diverse modes of communication, such as online chats and bulletin boards, such as conventions of offline meetings in real life? Aren't there complex relationships at work, such as the desire and the desire of the other? Even today, the otaku, regardless of their generation, compete with each other in collections, envy each other, boast, form cliques, and slander each other. This behavior is quite human. Would it not be too one-sided to argue that the otaku are animalizing and that they are beginning to lose the level of desire? To which I'm saying, like, okay, that argument so far is, the counter-argument so far is very, I think, succinctly stated, though it loses a lot of But, like, very aligned with what I'm thinking. It's just, like, you're forgetting about the fact that they're people but yeah exactly. you turn the page and yeah, the first sentence is but that is that not, is the, not case. the case <laughs> <laughs> indeed the, and this is i think where we're going to have to like really look into the mentality of otaku as they are uh, characterized because he continues on to say that indeed the postmodern otaku are human beings equipped with desire and sociality however their desire and sociality are quite distant from those of modern human beings because as he says repeatedly the otaku feel stronger reality in fiction than in reality and their communication consists in large part of exchanges of information so they're sustained not by necessity 
through kinship, but by interest in particular kinds of information. So they're only going to be social as long as they can get information that's useful for themselves and they can always leave whenever they want to. Meaning they're just going to like ghost and drop out of a discussion that when they're tired of it. And I'm kind of like, but isn't that every other strata of human existence? People always walk away all the time. Since the beginning of time, it's called voting with your feet. Even, <laughs> you know, signal to noise is a concept that you can actually just use to dismiss something. Yeah, and like this has been around for a very long time, and like that whole their desire and sociality are quite distant from those of the. I'm guessing he means like theoretically modern human beings. And for me, I'm just like, yeah, but like, it's still desire and sociality. So you can't say that they don't have those things <laughs> just because they're different from a different, another version. That, that pissed me off. Some of the language in this gets really, well, we've already pointed out that it's inflammatory, but it also just gets, I think, poorly chosen. I have, I have a question. Yeah. Can I? Because, of course, I whenever I read a text, and I don't know if you're like this, I, I know some people who will read a text in order to use it to justify the most bad faith reading of groups oh, of yeah. people. Absolutely. Is it, isn't this the kind of book that can be used to explain the dissolution of RPG ro- uh, RPG campaigns? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's all falling apart because people can just choose to walk away whenever. Oh, it's always been like that. <laughs> they, they're only interested in kinds of information. They only want to play with you if they have a particular kind of game. There's a different level. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry to bring back other vitriol from previous seasons. It's like the social contract's not the same or something because they, <laughs> it's only oh, about the necessity God. of information. You have any that I highlighted that literally made me walk out of a room because like, <laughs> I want to put it out of context at people. It is a phrase. The consumption of novel games is divided into double layers. The desire for the system at the level of database, comma, and the need for drama at the level of the malacra. Oh, no. no. Wait, wait. Are we reading another Forge book? Oh, no. (laughs) No. I was. oh, 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 my gosh. Wait. I know I've read the sentence before, but Fiona, coming from you, I'm like, is this another Forge book? <laughs> is this another Forge book, Fiona? Oh, this man looked at the majesty of nerd culture and only found the idea that systems and databases matter. Yeah. Not it, does, that, oh. it does get sloppier than usual with some of when we start going into the online world here. He's just like, oh my God. In these chapter games, three, you, you know, like, or even with the the novel games, where it's just like, oh yeah, 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 they're actual bits and pieces that you can pull from like a catalog and put together however you want. My God, guys, the database is a database. <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> Character right. creation is basically yeah. involving in the in the database. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, I, I almost. I wonder if he had just called it like extremely online forum people like rather than otaku and had just chosen the extremely online forum and that they're interested in nerd culture but don't participate in social things 
if this whole book wouldn't have worked better because as a historian of the internet, I feel like this only works if you just say he's describing 2chan, like, you know, the early anonymous Japanese forum that Americans would know uh, through descendants 4chan and 8chan, although both of them are hosted in the Philippines, I'm pretty sure. Some of them, for sure. Um, But, like, you know, like, Mm. on that level, I would almost say, like, this kind of makes sense. It's people that don't have something in common argue with each other and, like, Ah. have hyper-fringe interests. But even then, Mm. I don't think Otaku was a good rendering of that. No, and because I think of, like, online community and these things that aren't constrained by national borders and local communities anymore in the more recent pop culture sense of it being now really socialized world and that you're no longer restricted by something like proximity or having growing up in the same place or having the same culture. So some of this idea of sociality and traditional communication and kinship and local community breaking down so it's bad. It's like, yeah, but like, I don't know about anyone here, but I grew up in a really small kind of not very diverse or open-minded town. If those are the people I had to live my entire life with, I can't say that that's somehow a better life than me living on my own, connected to the internet, talking to people like you right now who are not right in front of me but I formed a relationship with like there's just a very I think specific idea of sociality and humanity and all of these definitions from like old European philosophers is really bringing this book down (laughs) really that was what sprung it down (laughs) yeah like (laughs) among other things well yeah like yeah. I think I think the summary of this book would would definitely like I don't know I'm I'm or I'd forgotten how much this gave me conniptions. <laughs> it's like it's just, this is this is okay because so because the whole argument behind this is that the reason why the reason Ataku are the way they are is because they have no grand empathy. So like it's that grandness again. That, like, that okay. also, yeah, that pissed me off. Sorry, it's like, <laughs> but, it's, but right, it's like, it's whole, basically like the absence of a grand narrative has, I guess, because he doesn't really explain what grand empathy is, so it's implied heavily that the grand yeah. narrative created a grand empathy. So I'm just kind of like, but anyway, but it, because let's let's consider that for a moment. But anyways, yeah, yeah, <laughs> just like. Eh, eh. So like so he so after Fiona's example of like the consumption of novel games being like this double layered like problematic thing, is that okay? Oh my gosh, I, I can't believe I'm gonna have to read this sentence out. <laughs> it is unnecessary to cite Rousseau to point out that empathy was once considered a basic element of society, and I'm like, and yet you brought it up. Um, yeah, here we are. <laughs> um, you know, it's unnecessary to cite something that's so obvious, but let me say it anyway. Yo, uh, in a, Red Rousseau, though, like that's impressive, right? Aren't you impressed? <laughs> I'm so impressed. I mean, you know, he really likes his Frenchies um, in terms of philosophers, right? So it is unnecessary to cite Rousseau to point out that empathy was once considered a basic element of society. 
In a modern tree model society, the circuit tracing small narratives, small empathy, back to a grand narrative, a grand empathy was still a mean thing. <sighs> wow. It's, it's, ideology. it's like, this, he is the Deanna Troy of theorists. It's all yeah. about the feelings. I, I feel. Today... It just implies that otaku have no feelings. They have it, no meaning. They have no feelings. Well, they have well, no social lives. They he, have no. It's it's, it's a way. It's more damning than that. It's he's saying that yeah. they not only do they not have that, they're only satisfied with the shadow of what is real. They oh, yeah. are they're eating on the crumbs of what is true feelings. They yeah. you know it's like you think you feel desire. You don't feel desire. You just you look don't. at cat girls. You were, that's not a desire for cat girls. That, for real things, that's a desire for imaginary substrate, substrate of cat girl. And you like, think you have friends? No, you don't. This is pretty much what's happening. Yeah, it's like, you think your relationships are meaningful? They're not. You might have met oh. them in person, spent hours with them. You might have the conceived interest, and you might have cried over the same things like when Eris died in Final Fantasy VII. But oh, guess what? Empty. Yeah. Fake. Fake. So much so that he continues on to say, and here we go again, trigger warning, this person talking, medicalizing, <sighs> medicalizing and psycho, like psychoanalyzing without any like true data. To this extent, the functions of moe elements in otaku culture are not so different from those of Prozac or psychotropic drugs. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, yeah, that was the... Um, if I remember correctly, this is 2001. So, <sighs> to... Prozac Nation, baby. It's also, I think, the year that Time Magazine published a thing about what is a meme and published a photo of all your base are belong to us. (laughs) Yeah, but you see, like... This is very in vibe with the times. Like, you know... The internet is a series of tubes. Yeah, like, this is... (laughs) In a weird way, I feel such affection for how boomerish this is. Yeah, it is but, very yeah, but, but like, let's look at this, right? He's basically arguing that um, he's basically arguing that to engage in otaku culture is to make oneself an addict to Prozac. At that time, until now, uh, Prozac is a prescription drug, right? It is an actual prescription drug, so it creates a lot of like links to you basically. This is what he's basically arguing by heavy implication. If you engaged in otaku culture, it meant that you probably recognized there was something wrong with you, so you had to medicate your way into feeling better. And or you have such a void that you or, just fill it with drug-like stuff. Because we're now animals and just feeding the need. <laughs> well, this replaces your depression. Like, you yeah. know, this is a replacement for the grand empathy, which... I'm going to hazard a guess is that he's trying to say that because there's no grand narrative, there's no grand society you can believe in, right? Which is also a very boomerish take on, you know, the United States. And I feel like also a very boomerish Japanese take. Um, It is, yes. Different emphasis. I don't think people realize just how boomerish Japanese people can be. (laughs) I mean, I mean... But, like, you know, it's like, yeah, you don't have, like, nationalism or strong ideology or, like, you know, the sort of, like, grand concept of, like, being a people that, like, 
people always believe existed in the past. And I am an amateur at history, but I would point out, yeah, no one in the past had it like better in terms of alienation. It's, it's <sighs> okay. So this is okay. I'm, I'm, I'm just sighing my way through this last yeah, chapter. You got I, this. I, I haven't done, <laughs> I ought, uh, Emma, you don't understand. I haven't made this sound in over a year. Like oh. last time I was feeling this way over a book was the damn forge book. As in the, like, I really we've feel done so many books since then. We've done so many things since then. And I was happy. Like the elusive shift. I'm happy. Aww. Like, you know, like even laughing over Cinderbrush, I was happy. But this, <laughs> this. Yeah. <laughs> so let's look at this now. Let's let no because this is where I think this is where I think this guy completely felt so like smug about his writing in this paragraph. To conclude, corresponding to the double layer structure of the database world, the modern subjectivity, the postmodern subjectivity rather, is also divided into double layers. The subjectivity, the cis subjectivity, is motivated by this by the need for small narratives and quotes at the level of the simulacra and the desire for a grand non-narrative at the level of database. While it is animalized in the former, it maintains a virtual emptied out humanity in the flatter. This, in a nutshell, is the image of humanity emerging from the above observations. I call this new view of humanity a database animal. Boom, I paid for my grant. That's where I... That, <laughs> he said the title. He's, That's it's the title. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like... And this justifies the publication cost, you know, like, and this, this is the climax, y'all. This is the climax. And I'm just, oh, he does it all in italics, too. Very fancy. Mm-hmm. Um, Emphasis. And uh, a part of me really wants to read this, wishes I could read this from the original Japanese source text. Because I might be, I want to be fair here. I'm trying to be kind. Am I railing at what I'm reading and what was actually written, or am I attacking a translator for something that could have been lost in nuance? Mm. I mean, this I'm trying all sounds to be very much here. like something a Japanese dude would say from the okay. in particular about this topic. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Emma. Because no, now no I can feel I, I can feel angry justifiably now. The target yeah. the target is justified. And then the things that come out of people sometimes. I mean, can we can we question through this notion, right? Which is that basically, if you don't have a grand narrative, are you not a human? If your imagination has been pre-selected for you because you are dependent on a database, then what is the point of something like history or oral tradition? Because when you get down to it, those are databases. Oh yeah. So like what is the point. Yeah, I have a lot of things written in the side, like, how is this different? Explain how this is different. Mm. These Some of these things already exist. How is it different? Why? Why is this such a big deal? Um, and, you know, you, you, you know. I stopped writing it because there was no point. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so, obs- like, like, Jared, I wanted to ask you as well, right? Because you engage in providing games to people, uh-huh. like, among more than anyone else. A like, purveyor. You're a purveyor, right? You 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 read through all of these games before you decide to sell them. For right? sure. Do you do you feel like you are engaging in the expansion of a database when you start giving games to people? Uh 
Um, not as such, not directly. Like if you if you ask me, can I imagine that that's the case? Then like, yeah, but I can imagine all kinds of things. Yeah, <laughs> right. But like, but that's the thing, you know. It's almost like. This is why I feel it's so insulting because it involves people <laughs> that we kind of know, which is that if, if you engage in geek culture, if you're part of the distribution mm. network of yeah. geek culture, then it means that you're part of making people less empathetic. You are yeah. guilty now. You are complicit in wow. the act of making people unable to feel. I do feel like a lot. I think I do get annoyed, not just intellectually with this, but also as yeah a nerd as well as like a Japanese diaspora, like some of this just like gets me intellectually and personally. And then it's like, no, let's argue you and me, we're going to talk. Like, <laughs> okay, bring it. Bring it. Yeah. I mean, but, right. That's, like it's, this, it's just, this is something I was thinking. Of, oh, sorry. You go. You go. You first. I was just going to like, bitch, you go. You're going to say you something go. smarter for sure. Well, I just had something that I was thinking about while I was like rage walking home because transit didn't get me all the way home after reading this. Um, by the definition given for animal and human, aren't otaku just extra human? Because need has been removed and it's all about desire and fulfilling desire and amp- it just becomes a never-ending cycle of desire for these moe elements and similar products and everything else is taken care of well it's the the distinction was the the mimetic desire was the human version right and what, what did he characterize the animal desire as just need no, oh, no just desire. like raw need yeah just like i'm thirsty drink water yeah and, okay so like that's a, mm-hmm. it's a really weird distinction to me and this might be just be because i like I'm vaguely familiar with mimetic. Like I've read Gerard, you know what I mean? Like, and that's, he doesn't cite Gerard. He cites Kojev there who I don't know. And maybe that's why his presentation of mimetic theory is so weird in that moment. Yeah. Um, but like Gerard is interesting. I don't, anyway, if, if you're interested in like watching a person do this, but end up at like a meta hermeneutics of mm. the Bible, Go read Rene Girard. I, I recommend I see Satan Fall Like Lightning. It's a good book. Um, good to know. I'm probably yeah. <laughs> not going to do that, but like, yeah, for sure. I do but like, out there. That this is a problem of definition, and then him running away with what he wanted to say, anyways. Yeah, and it's it like the distinction there is really weird to me. Like the idea that, mm-hmm. that yeah. like you're that it's specifically not this mimetic thing. Like it's a rejection of the mimetic desire that he's yes. positing from Yes, Kajab. yes, yes. I have right. I, everything, yes, yes. It's hard to hold it in my head with also all the other arguments. <laughs> yeah, and then trying to combine that with like more recent consumer culture and consumerism doesn't quite work. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. work because the, the, the natural argument to make, I, I think, would be that instead of sort of mimicking our peers we mimic marketing right and that's how we find desire because for 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 gerard like the 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 deal with desire is like we are human therefore we have desire and we have no object for it and so we're always looking for an object and the way we find an object of desire is by Mm -hmm. seeing what other people desire but this book presents it and again this might just be like kojev's take on it as like almost the opposite where it's like what what we desire we can only keep desiring it if other people also desire it. Yeah, yes. that's more along those lines. But yes. then, that, isn't that 
Oh. Consumer culture. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. I, oh, you first. Desire yeah. it just to like talk to other people about desiring it and rank it and make a database out of it and like create elements that we list to make a database. You know, like being like, ah, yes, this has the Moe cat girl element. And now I must rank it in terms of all of the Moe cat girl elements that I have seen. Like maybe yeah. maybe the thing that I'm missing is that the database takes care of the desiring, right? That like maybe this is what it's getting at is that if I'm otaku and I see that an, um, an element, a moe element perhaps, is in the database, then I can just treat it as always already desired. Is that part of it? <laughs> you know I what think, I mean? Well, like what's I mean, confusing is, is, this is discussing it, that you saw that with other people <laughs> who shared the interest, right? Like, yeah. this is like the it's, I think we're trying to put culture. together a puzzle it's with so insulting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, you know what? I mean, <laughs> I think this needs another episode, y'all. But I will say... Yeah, we didn't even talk about HTML. We did, yes, but I think we'll have to go there next episode. I think the next episode might be the one that breaks me again. Oh, but dear. yeah, like <laughs> on that note, y'all, I think, yeah, because I'm, yeah. I'm literally like turning fetal. Oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, yes. And I just, let's just pose the last question of the book just to like give us like drive this fetal nail home. After the first feature of the competition of transcendence and postmodernity, what will become of the humanity of human beings? And that's where he leaves us. Uh, uh, he also said, "Did I answer my question? Yes, yes, no, I did. For okay. sure. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. On that note, <laughs> this is trying to be kind. Where we I got broke as again. This is so much. I'm breaking. I'm breaking apart. <laughs> yeah, I'm sweating. The chapter three is next, and that one's a really tiny one, and it doesn't present much novel information. <laughs> yes, it doesn't. <laughs> Yeah. It is, um, it is. It is. Yes. Okay, on that note, y'all.